0: Let me have you open your Bibles to Romans chapter 9. Uh, we, are, we are back in Romans, in case you couldn't tell from the amazing decorations that the decoration gnomes came in and have done uh, while we were gone. I will say that you are a better looking and better smelling bunch than I preached to last weekend. Uh, we were out in the forest and it was an amazing time um, that, uh, man, I just, I looked so forward to. Sort of by way of review, I wanted to sort of get our brains back into Romans. Some of you were here for the start of the book of Romans, and some of you weren't. And so I just wanted to sort of bring us up to speed Um, the context of of what Paul was writing to. He wasn't in Rome. He never made it to Rome, in fact, but he was writing to the church in Rome, and this was late in in his own life, in his own ministry, and Rome was a fairly impressive place, as some of you have studied and know about this. 20% of the population of the world at that time lived in Rome. Uh, It was known for game-changing advancements. Many contributions and influences can be traced from ancient Rome to modern civilization. This is when the biblical Letter of Romans was written. 23 years before the Colosseum was built, Paul put pen to paper and wrote Romans. Now consider this that the greatest civilization of antiquity now rests in relics, like a corpse. People travel from all over the world to come and look for ancient Rome, and what do they find? They find literally a corpse. And yet, the Word of God, This letter written in the same exact period is alive and speaking today. Millions around the world this morning are looking at, studying, memorizing, gleaning truth from, and altering their life because of what was written in the same period as the relic that is now unfunctioning and a tourist destination called the Colosseum. Friends, when we come and gather and open our Bibles, let's not take for granted, and I say this as the preacher, let's not take for granted what I'm preaching forth. Let's not take for granted what we're opening and letting ourselves be exposed to. This is the Word of God that has survived the great ancient civilizations of the past. Martin Luther was a German, he was an impeccable monk, and he was a lousy sinner, and God used a couple of verses in Romans to turn him from a hater of God to a lover and proclaimer of God. He said this of Romans, Romans is the chief part of the New Testament and the very purest gospel which indeed deserves that a Christian not only know it word for word by heart, but deal with it daily as with daily bread for the soul. Luther's not alone in his praise for Romans. He goes on to say this, For it can never be read or considered too much or too well. And the more it is handled, the more delightful it becomes, and the better it tastes. I put out quotes to you from Romans from other amazing thinkers because I'm trying to convince you that the climb to the top of the mountain in studying Romans is worth it. That that it's worth it. It's going to require effort, but getting there is worth it. What is God teaching us through Romans? This is by way of review, so I'm going to go very, very quickly. But these are some of the major themes that if you look Romans uh, as a whole, you see this. Number one is God's laying out the standard or the measuring stick for righteousness. What happens with us as humans is this. Everyone is tempted to measure themselves against a standard that they hold up well to. In almost any field, I want to put a measuring stick that, that I measure up well too. And Romans says quite clearly that God sets the criteria and standards for righteousness. A second theme running through the book is this, trust God. We're to walk by faith and not by sight. We'll see that over and over and over again. Thirdly, that we'll get to predominantly in Romans 12.1 is to mimic God. He gave himself freely to us in love Our response out of that, the way we live out of that truth is to mimic God and do the same by giving ourselves freely in love. And finally, and this is where our theme, our title comes from, is that this truth is for all mankind ever and always. It is colossal. Uh, These columns are intentionally placed in our sanctuary. It's intentionally placed in our title slide. Because these truths are big and waiting, and you have to deal with them. You don't just move them conveniently; they remain. Look at all the universal language that Paul uses in Romans. I'm going to move through these quickly, but how about the depravity of all mankind that he lays out? The penalty that all sin deserves, the rescue that everyone uh, from everyone's death sentence is the gospel. The work of Christ is enough. To cover all of humanity. The offer is absolutely and eternally free. The offer is available to everyone who believes in Jesus. The only way to grace, the only way to be right with God is through the door of belief in Christ. The pardon received by those who escape in Christ is complete. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ. Not only people affected by this, but all of creation, according to Romans 8. And every circumstance is under God's control and being used for his glory and your good. And finally, all ruling bodies and authority are subject to the king of kings and to the plan that he is working totally ruined, completely redeemed, utterly free, and eternally secure in the love of God for all people. That's colossal truth. It's not just colossal in its reach. This is for all people, every culture, across all centuries, for all of time. But it's colossal in its weight or its importance. That's by way of review. That's chapters 1 through 8. If you like the cliff notes... You're welcome. Let me pray as we launch into Romans 9. God, um, thank you so much for this church. Thank you, God, for this church family. God, we praise you for the broader church community that this morning are opening your words, singing praises and hymns to you, speaking different languages, having different affections, coming from different cultures. And yet, God, we're united as brothers and sisters, coming needy to the cross and leaving completely satisfied in you. Would you show us that glory this morning. God, as we wade into Romans chapter 9 now, I pray, Father, that you would meet us here in a powerful way, as you promised to when your people come and gather. In Jesus' name, amen. So if you know your Bibles, you know that Romans 8 is an oft-quoted, oft-memorized, often said as a favorite chapter of people as Christians. Paul sort of ends Romans 8 with this soaring sonnet of praise to the amazingness of what it is to be a Christian. And then chapter 12 starts with some really practical devotional kinds of thinking on how do you live out of this truth. All this truth that Paul laid out in Romans 1 through 8, and then there's Romans 12 that sort of lays out the practical living. So some people have wondered, scholars included, what is chapters 9 through 11 doing here? Why this soaring sonnet of praise, and then a detour all about Israel, past, present, and future, and then back into the practical living? Is this an aside? Was this added in later? How does this fit into the big picture? We're going to look at that. You know, not all parts of a journey are the same. And I'll just warn you that chapters 9 through 11, this next section of Scripture, which, by the way, is represented on this side of the wall with, this, with the heading of rejection. We're looking at the rejection of the Israelites to God, is a, bit of a, is a bit of rapids. And when rapids come on the journey, you sort of tighten your grip, you sharpen your attention, and you ready yourself. Now, when I say rapids, some of you are thinking this. Uh, There are some kinds of rapids that you're familiar with, um, and uh, I'll just warn you that if you are showing up to church, and you are thinking these kinds of rapids, and you have a fanny pack where you're going to keep things from getting wet, and you've got a little snack in case you have a little tummy rumble, and you're hungry, and you've got your leather Birkenstocks, and you're a little worried about getting wet, I hope they don't get splashed on too much. Let me just tell you, you will be disappointed coming to church for the next several weeks. Because you will come with one set of expectations and you'll be annoyed at the scary ride that you're on. Some of you have been in some real rapids before, right? Real rapids, you need something more. Now, if you are offered a guide and you're given instructions and you're given a paddle and taught a little bit how to follow some commands and you're given a life vest, these kinds of rapids are quite exhilarating. They are a blast. It's kind of like four-wheeling, but on water. It's amazing. It's a really, really incredible ride, and this is more what we're heading for. Someone said this about scholarship. Scholarship, I know, intimidates some of you. Some of you are just lit up about this. You're like, he just said the word scholarship, and I think we're heading there for a few weeks. Scholarship is this. Step one, look at what you're studying. I don't care if you're studying a monarch butterfly or you're studying a text of Scripture. Step one is this. Look intently. Step two is look some more. You might be able to guess step three. Look at it. Here's the application. If I'm the only one reading the scriptures on this journey, if I'm the only one looking at it and going, that doesn't really make much sense to me, God help me, and then looking at it some more and then staring intently at it, you're going to walk away from here, I think. Many weeks confused, even though I'm trying to help this be accessible, even though I will be your guide in some of this, myself and others. I'm pleading with you. Look at the scriptures. Here's what you see about Romans 9 through 11. Most of this section of scripture is clear, and some parts aren't. Some parts are downright baffling. Here are just a couple of the hurdles. You can, you can jot these down if you want. There are intellectual hurdles to Romans 9 through 11. That is, they make your head hurt. When you look at what Paul's trying to write, and we have other people in the New Testament that say, what Brother Paul writes is sometimes hard to figure out. So we're in good company. There's also uh, the reality that some of the things written are beyond your stage of growth at this current point in time. That means that your spirit hurts as you're trying to comprehend this. 1 Corinthians 2 says, For who has understood the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him But we have the mind of Christ? That's the wrong verse. Uh, Here's the verse I was looking for. um, That what we're looking at in the scripture is spiritually discerned. The flesh doesn't discern it. It's spiritually discerned. Now, when I say that your head hurts and your spirit hurts, here's what I want you to think. I want you to think of sore muscles after a workout. It's a good kind of hurt. It's not pleasant, but it's good because it's advancing you. It's growing you. And as I push you and as the text pushes us, it will do that. Thirdly, that there, there are some, uh, some cultural hurdles we need to get over. There are mindsets that are influenced by the day and time and location that you live in that make certain uh, things invisible to you. You think this is common sense knowledge. Everyone thinks this way. They don't. Travel a couple thousand miles in some direction, you will come across other cultural mindsets. Travel a few hundred years in time, and you'll really discover some mindsets. So there's some cultural bridging that needs to go on. (coughs) And a fourth hurdle is this. We all have a notion right now of who God is. It's been said that the most important thing about you is what comes into your mind when you think of the word God. Who is God? As I've read the scriptures for years and years and years now, I've come across passages I don't like and I wrestle with, and it's a hurdle. Why? Because I had a picture of what God was like. The text is telling me something different than my preconceived, already-formed picture of who God is. This is just how we relate to people. You're dating someone, and they've done nothing wrong in your eyes because you're blinded. (laughs) At some point they do something that seems out of character with the picture you have of that person and you're crushed for a little bit of time. And then what you do is you readjust your image of what that person is like or you live in complete denial and the relationship begins to suffer. Those of you pursuing a real relationship with a real God is just like with a real person. You adjust as you go and as you read things and discover things about God there can be a strain to that Here's the beauty Paul just told us in Romans 8. We are more than conquerors in Christ. So as we grow and as we stretch, God is with us. So if you're dressed for Disney Rapids today, um, change. This is what C.S. Lewis said. He said, God is no fonder of intellectual slackers than any other slackers. If you're thinking of becoming a Christian, I warn you that you are embarking on something which is going to take the whole of you, brains and all. But fortunately, it works the other way around. Anyone who is honestly trying to be a Christian will soon find his intelligence being sharpened. One of the reasons why it needs no special education to be a Christian is that Christianity is an education itself. And some of you have walked this and know this to be true and are excited about it. So let's get to work. What is Paul addressing? What, are some, what is sort of the big idea of what Paul is addressing in taking this detour from Romans 8 before launching into practical living of the truth in Romans 12? Having just spelled out a masterful argument describing the way that God justifies sinners, all are ruined, is the first section of this. Redemption is found through Jesus Christ alone. He's just built this masterful argument This is how God justifies sinners. In this section, it's like Paul turns his focus and now justifies God. Romans 9 through 11 is mistakenly by some people thought to be all about Israel. It's not. It's all about God. Israel's sort of the main topic that he goes into, and we'll see why in just a second. It's like Paul can hear someone saying, if nothing could separate us from the love of God, that's the end of chapter 8, What about the Jews? Has God failed? Most of them are unbelievers. Paul hints at this in Romans chapter 3, where he says, "What what advantage has the Jew? Remember that? What advantage has the Jew? He says this, much in every way. First of all, they're given the oracles of God. And then he never finishes the list. This is him coming back to it. We're going to see in our text today. In fact, I alluded to it back when I was preaching through Romans 3. He's going to go on with what advantage the Jews have. But then he goes on to say this. He says, what if some are unfaithful? What if some Jews are unfaithful? He says, does that nullify God as faithful? And then here's our word that we've learned from Romans. Meganoita! May it never be. God Forbid! It's the strongest term possible. Just because some are unfaithful, that doesn't nullify the faithfulness of God. So understanding this sort of rejection section requires some effort. John Piper said this, If you rake, you get leaves. If you dig, you just might find diamonds. Sometimes we rake over Scripture and we go, Huh. I don't, think, I don't find much devotional thoughts in Romans 9 through 11. I'll skip it and get to Romans chapter 12. I'm inviting you to put forth the effort to dig with me. Look at, look at Romans 9, 6. Romans 9, 6 is sort of a key passage to understanding this section of Scripture. He says, but it is not as though the word of God has failed. In his defense, in his justification of what God is up to, He's saying God's word hasn't failed. Here's some sort of landmarks that we'll notice in this section. There are lots of quotes from the Old Testament. You will understand why as you realize that he is is showing forth uh, the answer to the rebuttal. What about the unbelieving Jews? There's some cultural bridging that is going to be needed as you read through this. I would, again, implore you, go and do some of this on your own. Lean on me and others who will be up here to sort of show you things and kind of guide you in that. There's nothing like learning firsthand from the Scripture, looking at it and looking at it some more. Thirdly, you'll see this. that Chapter 9 is generally God's dealings with Israel in the past. Chapter 10 is sort of a look at Israel's present situation. And in Romans 11, Paul turns his attention to God's future plans for Israel. And while this isn't the thrust of the passage... I want you to just sort of note the similarities in how God deals with Israel as a whole and individual Christians in particular. Chosen. Both Israel and individuals trying to establish their own righteousness by obeying law instead of turning and trusting to God's promise for salvation. All right, let me read the passage. We're just looking at five verses this this morning. the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. When I call this series Colossal Truth, it's for language like this. This language shows off the impact, the weightiness of this. Have you ever wrapped a package up in a box and then put bubble wrap all around the box and then encased the entire thing in duct tape? You might look at that and say, that's overboard unless the package warrants it. You look at that box and say, that's not enough. I've got to get bubble wrap on that sucker. And then you just wrap the thing in, in duct tape. If the package is worth it, then you go that and it's not overboard. Paul uses language at the start of this that seems overboard unless you catch the seriousness of it. He emphasizes the weight of his sorrow by first stating positively and then negatively that this is the truth. Then he backs it up with his conscience and then he sort of seals it by the witness of the Holy Spirit. With God is my witness, he's putting forth a solemn, pay attention kind of statement. Sit down, listen to me. This is of utmost importance. This is the seriously part of our title this morning. Seriously. I'm not saying it in the slang weird way that it's sort of getting hijacked. Seriously, I'm not saying that. I'm saying it in the intended accurate use. Friends, seriously. And he goes on to say this in chapter 2. I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. I wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. Paul cared for his brothers in the blood, and it mattered that they knew this. Why is he so distraught? It's really simple. They are rejecting the Messiah. The long-awaited Messiah has come, and they're rejecting him. That's the don't reject Jesus part of our title. I had a wonderful professor at San Jose Christian. He was a youth ministry guy, and he would always say this. He'd say, people don't care how much you know until they know how much you care. People don't care how much you know until they know how much you care. I found that to be true. It can be sort of intellectually entertaining for a season to hear some great orator who's way smarter than you because it's mildly entertaining. But many of you have 300, 700, 1,000 plus channels at home. But people speaking on a TV, they don't know you. They don't care about you. They don't tearfully say goodbye when you move away. Paul is expressing to the Jews, his countrymen, how much He cares because the message matters immensely. After all that we have in Christ, which he lays out at the end of chapter 8, there's no condemnation. The Spirit helps us in our weakness. We are eternally accepted. Paul is turning his gaze in chapter 9 to those who should be first in line and begging for this and celebrating the most, those closest to God, or so it would seem the chosen people of Israel. Instead, their rejection of Christ has left him with unceasing anguish, not for himself, but on their behalf. I want you to think about rejection for a moment. Universally, this is probably one of the most painful of all things to happen to a human being. And it cuts as deep as the love of the relationship. You're not that put off by an enemy of yours rejecting you. You're like, yep, yeah, that's sort of what I figured. The closer that person is to you, the more you've opened up, the more you've risked, the more you've loved, the deeper that hurt is. And if this happens publicly, publicly, There's sort of a collective, ooh, if someone's rejected publicly from those around. Why? Because it is such a big deal. It hurts differently in public. There's shame involved. Now, let me get your head around this for a second. Romans 9 through 11 is about God. We need to look at rejection, not just from Israelites to God, but imagine God. What does it tell you about God? that he handles rejection by those closest to him, his chosen beloved people, the Israelites, in the way that he does. God's gift is for all mankind, but he starts with the Jews. It is a way of of saying also that this is the most honoring um, offering here to the Jews, and it's rejected. Hell hath no fury like what? Like a woman scorned. No one is angrier than a rejected lover. What we can expect from that is swift, complete retaliation and vengeance with all that they have in power. Now, get your head around an all-powerful God as a scorned lover. What do we see? We see God's character slow to anger, abounding in love, merciful and merciful like wave after wave. God's character is on display. Paul's concern is on display by the pattern of his ministry. It's amazing that Paul wasn't interested in simply expedience. There's a lot of churches that are trying to grow, and what they are doing is they're looking at this. What makes our numbers go up and to the right? How do we get more people? How do we get more money? How do we expand the ministry? More is better. And they've completely ignored what God has to say on what it even means to be a church. Paul's not after expedience, or else very, very quickly, here's what he would have done. He would have left the Jews behind and gone after Gentiles. You know why? Gentiles was like the explosive growth of the church. They were getting in on this, and they were rejoicing. Instead, Paul knew this was God's plan, and so he was cooperating with this. Jew first, and then the Gentile. Jew first, and then the Gentile. If you read your Bibles, that's a familiar little refrain, isn't it? Jew first and then the Gentiles. Jesus set the pace on this. Matthew chapter 10, he says, These twelve Jesus sent out instructing them, Go nowhere among the Gentiles and enter no town of the Samaritans, but go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. God comes on the scene in the form of a baby named Jesus. Jesus grows into a man. He begins his ministry. And what he does is hold to this pattern, this plan. This is for the Jew first and then the Gentiles. It makes you begin to hear his stories in a sort of a different way. There's this parable where Jesus is talking about he is feeding his own kids first, his own family first. Think about you, parents. You are responsible to your family. So Jesus is talking about feeding his own family first in Mark chapter 7 when a Gentile woman comes and he asks Jesus to heal her little girl. She's demon-possessed. Now listen to Jesus' reply in Mark seven twenty seven: Jew first and then the Gentile. Hear why he's saying this. Read this parable in a whole new light right now. And he, Jesus, said to her, let the children be fed first, for it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. But she answered him, yes, Lord. Yet even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. Can we give a great big cultural ouch right there? That sounds really weird. I'm pretty sure Jesus just told this needy woman who has a demon-possessed daughter that she's a dog and doesn't deserve to eat? Cultural bridging. Remember there's hurdles? This is one of them. Here's Here's what the context of this is. This came at a time when Jesus was being harassed and persecuted, catch this, by Pharisees from Jerusalem, the very people he is going to first, because that's his plan. And he always pleases the Father. You notice that the woman didn't deny that Jews had, the, had a claim on the good things that Jesus offered. And yet, she felt getting crumbs from it now wouldn't take away from the feeding going on, the offering to the Jews. And when he calls her a dog, he's not talking about the wild scavengers that run the city. This is a word very specifically that meant an indoor pet, like a doggy, which is very abnormal to our culture where we treat our dogs like children sometimes. So when you start to break down the language and say, what was being communicated here? Why didn't she run off in a huff and try to take him to court for his you know, misuse of language? That's why. Jesus faithfully offering food and nourishment to his own family, even though they are rejecting it, and it spills over to hungry Gentiles. Here's what he says in response to her comment. Your daughter's well. He just he healed the daughter just like that. Man, that comment, that kind of faith, that you just want the crumbs of it, and isn't this a picture of the gospel? It's being poured out to people rejecting. It's splashing over, and those on the outside are drinking it in, absolutely thirsty for a tiny taste of grace. Paul is accused today of being anti-Semitic, that is, anti-Jewish, and this has been unchanged since he walked the earth. What we'll see is this, that Paul was passionately, urgently loving towards his countrymen, not only based on what he said, but by what he did. His words and his deeds screamed loudly, I truly love you. So why on earth was Paul attacked and vilified and labeled a bigot? The answer is this. True love often exposes self-love. True love exposes self-love. Self-love. So instead of being celebrated, it is maligned. Here's what we can learn from Paul. True love is costly. True love is misunderstood. And true love often is painful. Rob said it well. You can't force anyone to trust the truth. You can't trust anyone. You're not, you're not able or called to live other people's lives from. And sometimes that is the hardest thing. Look at what Paul said just from our own letter. For I'm convinced... Uh, For I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. There it is. To the Jew first, and then to the Greek. The Greek is like a Gentile. All non-Jews. Romans 2.10. But glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good. The Jew first, and then the Greek. It's not that Gentiles are excluded, but they waited in line. There's a proper order to the way that God rolls this whole thing out. Paul is honoring this order that's been set in place. But not only did he preach about it, he lived out this convictions. In fact, his actions preached louder than his words even. You know what his habit was? His habit was to go into a new town and seek out a synagogue. If there wasn't a synagogue, he'd go find the place. Hey, where do the Jews meet? Where do they hold their worship? That was his pattern. I'm in the book of Acts right now, just my own personal reading. It's just everywhere. It's laced all through the story of the early church. After visiting the synagogue and trying to reason with the Jews, he would either be received or thrown out, and then he'd go preach some more. Acts 17 says they came to Thessalonica where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And Paul went in, as was his custom on three Sabbaths. He reasoned with them from the Scriptures. What was the reaction to all of Paul's reasoning and pleading and trying to explain, no, 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 this isn't a whole different thing. This is is rooted in the Old Testament. This is God's plan. This is a story all along. It was mixed at best. Acts 28 says this, and some were convinced by what he said, but others disbelieved and disagreeing among themselves, they, the Jews, departed. Sometimes the truth hurts so much that people just leave you. I'm going to block you. I don't want to hear from you. I don't want you to talk to me about my eternal soul anymore. No, thank you. In Acts 13, it says, Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly, saying, It was necessary that the word of God be spoken to you first. Paul's not on a church growth ego kick of what's expedient. He's following God's plan. It was necessary. This is God's plan since you thrust it aside and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life behold we are turning to the gentiles rejection over and over again i'm coming to the jews i'm reasoning with you you're rejecting it god is is opening the door for me to preach this to the gentiles by the way if you are not jewish this morning praise god for this truth that's how the word of god came to our ears faithful men faithful women through much persecution through all of history obeyed the the simple jesus command go go and proclaim the good news that's why i'm standing here today someone faithfully reported this message of salvation god opened my heart to receive it praise god for that paul repeatedly makes this offer to his kinsmen he routinely is rejected he's sometimes attacked and yet somehow his heart remains tender towards the jews I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish. I wish that I myself were accursed by Christ and cut off. If only that would mean that you would get in on it. These weren't empty words, but wooing words that are backed up by a track record. Let me give you a tiny bit of application because some of you are in the thick of this right now. Paul's reaction to people who reject the saving message of Jesus as the only way to God is utterly instructive. The first thing that we see from him is that he pours out truth-based emotion. Paul was one tough guy. I just read the other day, he's dragged out because he was beaten. Imagine what a body must look like to people who are sort of used to seeing dead. He's dragged outside the city, and they presumed him dead. The story doesn't really talk about his getting back to normal, but that some friends come, and he's like, well, I guess they've rejected it. I'll move on to another town. He was a tough guy, pelted by rocks, willingly lacks comfort for the basis of the truth. He is an airtight, logical mind. And yet what's powerful with Paul is this. Tough guy, uber-logic guy, Pouring out emotion with a tender hearted plea. I'm pleading with you, Jews, catch this. And this wasn't just written in a letter, this was his life. This is what he did. I say truth based emotion to contrast it with reactionary flesh emotion or forget all truth torrents of emotion. (laughs) We both know what I'm talking about with that. There's, There's different ways to pour out emotion on people. Here's sort of the application of that. Don't turn hard and indifferent to loved ones that reject Jesus Christ. Hear me. They are not a lost cause. They are not a lost cause. Many of our stories show how far we were from God, how we were the last person that should have said yes. And God's grace reached even to us. Your loved ones are not a lost cause. Do not turn indifferent. Do not turn hard, hard-hearted. If you don't feel that right now, pray for them. Pray for them with the sincerity that Paul prays for his countrymen. If he can do it for people who physically beat him, you can do it for your loved ones and neighbors. He also didn't take it personal. Paul didn't take it personal. That's remarkable, actually. Over and over and over again, he's preaching the truth. He's laying it out in love. He has nothing to gain except, except what God's called him to do. And he doesn't take it personal. Year after year after year after year, what goes by? He doesn't seem to get cynical. That's God's grace working in him. Finally, stay and fight for them. The simple command, the second greatest command is love your neighbor as you'd love yourself. How would you want to be loved if you were rejecting life? Like your lifeblood, your eternal life is at stake. How would you want someone to love you? You'd want them to stay and fight for you. Sometimes it means closing your mouth. I'm a talker. I talk a lot. Sometimes I need spirit-directed silence to just go be with a friend and not preach a sermon at them. Other times, it means open your mouth. Stay and fight for them. A truth is put out there that's a falsehood. Don't let that stand. And there are just so many great ways to gently, winsomely, lovingly say, brother, sister, that's simply not true. Can I share with you a different perspective? Secondly, is remain steadfast in truth. When loved ones don't adhere to reality, don't change reality. What Paul didn't do was Alter the gospel. You know, year after year, people are having a really hard time with it, especially the Jews. I'm just going to soften this a little bit. Friends, this goes on all the time. Guard what comes into your brain. There is stuff being sold at the Christian bookstores marketed as Christian genre under the podcast heading. It's trash. It's demonic. It's preaching a false gospel. It's moving the boundary. Your little Johnny really wants to run a five-minute mile, but the problem is he can only get around three laps of the mile track, the quarter-mile track, in five minutes. How unloving is it to move the boundary? You did it! Mom conveniently miscounted so little Johnny could get a trophy in his own mind. You are setting that child up for severe disappointment sooner or later. How much more with the eternal weight of God's wrath over sin? Where you preach safety and you preach uh, beauty where God says danger and wickedness. Pour your energy into the plea to highlight all that they're forfeiting in Christ rather than pouring your energy into reinterpreting scripture. Many, many, many people are doing this with homosexuality right now. They are investing large amounts of energy to see, maybe we've had this wrong for centuries. Let me just do theological gymnastics and create Bible spaghetti to try to get something out of it. Because I now have a loved one that is living this lifestyle. They're unrepentant. Maybe it's not wicked. Maybe it's not sin. Friends, pour your energy into highlighting the beauty of Christ, into highlighting all that they're forfeiting, not into theological gymnastics. I am going to leave you the work of looking intently at the nine advantages that Jews have, according to Paul in this passage. Israelites, adoption, glory, covenants, law, worship, promises, patriarchs, and the fact that Jesus Christ was from their own race. I'm not going to get into that. That's in your community questions. You can look at that yourself. I want to touch on one final point, and that is this, and it's going to take a little bit, once again, of just some cultural unpacking to get here. Paul is turning in 9 through 11 to expose the false notion that Jews in particular would hold, and that is this. I'm good. I'm safe. I don't need a doctor. The truth is we all trust someone or something. We are validated or condemned by something or someone. We consider ourselves safe or in danger. We make this assessment all the time. Jews believe this. I am close to God because of my blood and because of the marking on my flesh. They are of the lineage of Abraham, and they are circumcised. Because of that, I'm good. I'm safe. I don't need a Savior. Paul's argument has been this. No one has ever been safe by merely being a physical Jew. Abraham's blood and markings of the flesh provide no safe passage. Listen to Romans 2.28. For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical. But a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the spirit, not by the letter. Over and over and over. Here's the message of Romans. Romans. It's not your blood of Abraham that you possess. It's one of Abraham's descendants' blood that saves you. It's not the markings on your flesh as prescribed by the law that gives you safe passage out of sin and death. It is the markings and bruisings of the Messiah's body they're on the cross that provides safe passage as He takes punishment that we all deserve as sinners. That's His argument over and over again. Now do you see the rub? The Jews had a false sense of security. Now, I'm holding this hamburger right here. Okay? I am passing on all kinds of food that is being offered to me because while I'm not hungry in the immediate future, noon is coming rapidly. I tend to get hungry right around noon. You're offering me food, and I say this, no thanks, I'm good. I am more than good, I have plenty. This has been sitting in Ben's office for a long, long time. I've never been tempted to eat it. Not once. Who knew that it would be such an amazing theological prop for Romans chapter 9? The representation is not the real thing. The sign celebrates what the real thing is, points to what the real thing is, but it will never sustain you. With the Jews, it's more than hunger at stake. It's safe passage out of their sin. It's standing at the edge of the Red Sea with the Egyptians pursuing to kill and they think they have a way across and they don't. I'm good. Paul has such compassion for them because this was his story. Paul was preaching fake hamburgers. In fact, he was the best at it. He was an all pro Pharisee. When Jesus rocked his world and said, that's fake, that's not the way to salvation, that's man's righteousness, that was never the plan. And Paul did a 180. He repented. And he has a special place in his heart because he understands the cultural pressures that Jews have to overcome, that Gentiles know nothing about. Religious achievement, gold star track records, and the stress of living out traditions. Remarkably, God has the power to save, even those who don't think they need a Savior. So some of the Jews were coming to Christ anyway. It's super easy for us to see their false sense of security. Let me make the connection. According to Jesus, what is harder than a camel going through the eye of a needle? Do you know? In case you didn't understand... Here's what they said. It's harder for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to come to God. We live in a valley where people are passing on real wealth because they're good. They've got plenty now, and there's just nothing but positive inflow as far as they can see. It's a security blanket. It's a false sense of security. That's the connection here. That's one of the major hurdles. You know who gets that? I was born and raised right here in San Jose. I spent all but 10 months of my life living here. I have a special compassion for that because most of my classmates, much of my family has chased the God of what material stuff can bring and buy. Let me give you one more. Add to this fact for the Jews that Gentiles were now claiming rights to their God. Let me make a super easy connection for us, especially here in California, although it's nationwide. It's easy to imagine their sense about the Gentiles when you think about the word immigration, DACA, dreamers, whether you are born natively here or an immigrant, legal or illegal, you see the blinding emotions surrounding this this issue. Now, take that and multiply it by maybe a factor of 100, and you get Jew and Gentile. It is built into the fabric of their culture. Jews wouldn't even eat with Gentiles for fear of being defiled. Because of wealth and because of immigration, we begin to get our heads around why the rejection, why the hurdle, why is this such a big deal and a hard thing? Let me invite the band up, and while they come, don't lose this. This is what this message is driving towards. I want to get us clear on what God does and what we do. If you're taking notes, write these down. What God does is this He makes and keeps promises. It's not as though God's word has failed. He also remains sovereign. God does not abandon his post. Finally, we see that God gifts generously, just looking at the Israelites and the Jews and all that they had despite the rejection. What do we do? We receive and give thanks. We don't need to manufacture gifts. We don't need to manufacture reasons that we're excited about God. We just receive and give thanks. We also hurt deeply for those who are outside of his grace. We lament the lost. Thirdly, we give ourselves to those who are perishing. Isn't this what Paul did? Over and over and over again, he gave himself to countrymen and Gentile alike, wherever the Spirit led him. And finally, we rehearse and remind each other of all that we have in Jesus Christ. That's a part of what we're doing right now. Your brain has been stirred up to think about the benefits of being in Christ that you weren't thinking about on Friday morning. You just weren't. It's the way the word of God works. It's the way that music works. It's the way that prayer works. It lifts our attention. We go, that's right. That's what's most weighty. That's what's most real. Community groups are coming at the end of September. Don't miss September 24th. That's the Sunday where we do our big on-ramp. I want you, church, to begin praying for leaders and logistics to be worked out. We have a huddle tonight. There's been much behind-the-scenes work as leaders are praying for you community groups are an incredible place to rehearse and remind each other of all that we have in Jesus. What you'll notice in your bulletin is this. Tons and tons of of kinds of groups. There's a diversity of groups forming, young marrieds and young adults, and uh, men's groups and women's groups. And then there's just fruit salad groups that are just no specific thing. It's just an open group to anyone. There's really a group for, for every person. The unity is this. We're following Romans. We're staying with the lecture lab format. This was great to hear, one-sided. Let me get in and talk about it with my friends. We need each other. Life has this way of throwing rapids at us, too. It's not just text. I want you to look at this person near the back of the raft. You can't quite see her face, but she has a giant smile on her face as she's about to go down. Here's what's just incredible. Her energy and her positivity is needed for this guy in the front right. I don't know if you can see his face, but he is utterly terrified. What's beautiful is they're in the same boat together. This is part of what community groups do. You get around a group and you go, why is that guy always terrified? Why does he always see life as half full? I mean, half empty. Man, God puts people in the front of the boat and people in the back of the boat in the same group, and you rub off on each other. I want you to just close your eyes for a minute. Ongoing, painful anguish for those who reject God's righteousness. Ongoing, joyful delight for those who accept God's righteousness. Friends, hell and heaven are at stake with this message. Here's my invitation to you this morning. Whether you are Jew or Gentile, there's no distinction. All are saved the same way. That includes Catholic, Christian, Hindu, Mormon, and on and on and on you could go. Whatever label you brought in here, there's no distinction If your particular stumbling block is that you stumble over your own righteousness and your own desire to keep the traditions, or if your stumbling block is you know you have no righteousness of your own, I have great news for you. You can lay it down right now. The work has been completed. Jesus said from the cross, it is finished. Friends, there's nothing left for you to do except believe. Grace is gifted and complete. Today, if you hear His voice, you respond. You stop rejecting and you receive. I would make one plea with you, if that's you. I'm not going to have you raise your hand. I'm not going to have you walk an aisle, although calling publicly is not a bad thing. I would say, please come and talk to me. Please come and let a trusted friend that you came with know of your decision. I have decided to trust and receive Jesus Christ this morning. God, we leave this in your hands. We thank you for instructing us and inspiring us this morning. Amen.